0: If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14, to Psalm 14. It is our, our, our next Psalm in the Summer in the Psalms series, and we'll begin reading there in, in just a few moments. Psalm 14 is the last in, the, in this grouping of Psalms, of Psalm 10, that started in Psalm 10, and so we're just going to sum them up just for a moment as we look at the very last so that we'd see the, the bookend of, of this particular group. Psalm 10 started with this honest look at the wicked, a very, a very gritty look of how the, the wicked oppresses, how the wicked has sinned, how the wicked has corrupted, abused the righteous. We see their desire for sin and to bless in a religious way those who take part in unrighteous deeds such as themselves. but the righteous in Psalm 10, but the righteous what do they do? They trust in the Lord. They, they pray, they live humbly before the righteous king of kings. And the application of Psalm 10 sounds a lot like what we what we know from I told y'all some of the coffee cup verses last week, another coffee cup verse would be uh, Micah 6, 8, right? Micah 6, 8, has he told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord, what does the Lord require of you, but to what? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly, right? A lot of times that's where the coffee cup stops, but it's actually the rest, walk humbly with your God, humbly with with your God. So so you can almost look at Psalm 10, the, the outcome of, the application of that is right there in Micah 6, 8. Psalm 11 exposes to us the the temptation of the righteous, right? Of the righteous that are living in this fallen world. They're tempted by the wicked to take flight. Remember that? The the flight in in, in fear, to to walk and to flee flee to their own mountains, to their own uh, structures of safety and away from the, the refuge of the Lord. In the passage, our psalm gives this juxtaposition, or will we remain firm in the foundation of the faith that it's built upon, and that is the Lord's presence with His people, His omniscience and all-knowing of all things, and His righteous judgment of the wicked. Also the knowledge and character of, of the Lord. So we see the doctrine of God being the firm foundation in which our faith rests and stands. And Psalm twelve shows us how the the wicked will cut off the faithful with their flattering lips, with their boasting, and with their tongues they will attempt to prevail over us, and yet once again the it is the Lord that keeps us, it is the Lord that guards us. And then last week, as we've already read this morning at the beginning of our gathering in Psalm thirteen, the great question of suffering in this particular grouping, right? It's 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 dealing with the wicked and the suffering of the righteous under the hand of the wicked. And he asked the question, how long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long? And we ask these kinds of questions when we face suffering in trials. And yet we pray, as David has showed us, to consider, O Lord. Consider us. Take Take note, look upon us, answer us. we see that, again, that gritty reality of the emotion that we face in suffering and trials, and that we can pray these things and ask God to answer us when they are rooted in truth. The posture of his people, despite, though, the, the, the trials and sufferings are still rooted in what we have learned in the earlier Psalms, is that they are rooted in the steadfast love of God. And so as his people, regardless of what comes our way, whatever we face, we rejoice in the hope of our salvation. And lastly, we sing. Talked about that last week. We, we sing. And so now we've come to the end of this particular group here in, in Psalm 14. So let's look to Psalm 14 together and we'll start reading at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. After the prayer of Psalm 13 with the questions that calls upon the Lord to to consider, to rise up, and to to save him, as he said he would do in Psalm 12, because of the threats of the wicked in Psalm 11. Here we have Psalm 14, just as we we just read, it reflects upon the foolishness and corruption of the wicked that we have already been talking about in the last group of psalms, which makes this... Group the wicked, here now the, the foolish, guilty of the coming judgment. And that judgment is certain. But this king, as we know is the writer David, who is foreshadowing of, of Christ, and with all of those aligned with this king, as we hear in every one of these particular psalms, we hear they will be saved. I want you to understand that from reading this psalm, and and like others, in the beginning of this psalm in particular, we can get the impression that that David's perspective of how he's writing and what he's writing is he is giving us the Lord's perspective, isn't he? He's giving us the the Lord's perspective. Can you see that there? He's assessing the wicked in verse 1. He's giving his diagnosis in verse 1. And then he notes how the the Lord is assessing the wicked in verse 2. And then he notes how the the Lord's assessment of the wicked in verse 2. And then in verse 3, they both come to the same conclusion, don't they? As David articulated in verse 1. And then in verses 4 through 6, David tells us that that all are culpable, all are are guilty of their wickedness and sin. And once again, we see that they will face the judgment, as described here, as a great terror. And lastly, in verse 7, as all the Psalms do in our group, there is this bright light of salvation and the gladness of God's people. It points us to, to hope. And as we've read in this psalm, you might be able to hear, actually repeated a few times, some familiar words to us. Familiar words because they are quoted in the New Testament. And that, that draws us a picture of one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of man. We also hear echoes of Psalm 53, certainly... But it's Romans chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 14 to make a massively important theological point about the doctrine of man. And that is this, is that mankind is in sin. That mankind is sinful. And in our sinfulness, we have a fallen nature that we have inherited from our first father Adam and in that fallenness and in that sinfulness and that fallen nature we are unable to do anything good as he quotes psalm 14 there is nothing that we can do that is good that can earn any kind of righteousness before a holy and righteous god on our own and the book of Romans, in particular, Paul is 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 not making the point for just or for uh, for condemnation's sake alone, but he is making the point because, by the way, we are already condemned. We already stand condemned before the Lord. But rather, he is making the point to pull, to point, and push sinners who can do nothing good on their on their own, who can never earn any kind of righteousness on their own. He is pointing us and pushing us to jesus christ he's pointing us to the to the cross he's pointing us to christ who on the cross he has earned a righteousness that can be bestowed upon us and that could justify us before god by grace alone through faith alone romans is teaching us about the gospel. It is just a long book on the gospel. That's summed up in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And yet here in the the doctrine of man from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Romans chapter 3, all of mankind has rebelled against God. Again, we have this this sinful nature, and in our rebellion, and in this sinful nature, we will receive the just wrath of God. We are sinners. It is what we deserve. In 1908, the Times of London asked a number of important writers around England to write on this topic and they gave him a question to write on. And the question was, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Now, we, 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 can, we can spend the rest of the week talking about that together. And one of the authors that at that particular time that had some notoriety and people knew about, so he was asked to, to write upon it. And his name is, I'm sure, familiar to a lot of y'all, is G.K. Chesterton. And he answered back to them. And his answer is quite profound, and yet it was the shortest of all the answers at all. And unquestionably, it is the answer that we remember the most over 100 years later. So remember the question that he was asked, what is wrong with the world? And this is how he answered the question. He said, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Like I said, short answer. Now, he wasn't trying to to get out of writing some some deep philosophical or sociological or theological piece, but rather what he was doing is he was honestly, he dug down to to the root of the matter of what's really wrong with the world, and he admits it. I am. I am. And of course he's not admitting that he alone is the reason for every crime and every evil and every wickedness on the earth, but very simple, but the deep truth that he is the problem as much as we are the problem, as the Bible correctly diagnoses that we are sinners, we are the problem. we we may have a complete understanding of the doctrine of man. We, We may be able to articulate and understand total depravity or total inability. But there is no point, no pointing of our fingers at anyone else until we understand that I am a sinner. That I am the problem. In Psalm 14... And honestly, with the the rest of God's word is teaching us that all of humanity, which includes each and every one of us, we are ruined by sin. There is none, no one at any age or any race or any nationality or any gender that has not rebelled against God. There is none who does good, no, not even one. And there is not one of us that cannot honestly say to answer that question that we are the problem. And yes, you're absolutely correct. Psalm chapter 8 tells us that we are crowned with the glory of honor. Because we are made in the image of God. Life is, is sacred and should be Protected yet, yet together we are still glorious and we are still fallen. We carry the honor of being made in the image of God and, and yet we still carry the shame and guilt of sin. Most of this world wants to conveniently forget or, or belligerently deny how Scripture so rightly exposes us. And we can understand that, even as as Christians, we can can understand the difficulty of understanding such a a doctrine, to be willing to accept it almost on a daily basis, because even after being a Christian for several years, or, or maybe even decades, it's still hard to swallow the evil and wickedness that comes even into my own heart at times. It's hard to fathom, it's hard to deal with. And yet, it is the very thing by which we need to be reminded of. That by our natures we are sinful. Because before we can see such the beauty of the gospel of a Savior who welcomes us. Who adopts us. Who draws us near. We must understand the awful truth of our sin and our inability to save ourselves. And thankfully, this psalm not only points us to that, but it points us to hope, just like Paul does in Romans. And the hope is the Lord is our salvation. And so this morning, I have four points that I'd like to give to you from Psalm 14. The first is man's rejection. As David tells us in verse 1, the the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable disease. There is none who does good. And verse 1 describes here at the beginning this this fool. And what this fool says in his heart and and what this man thinks in his heart, listen, as verse 1 tells us, so he does. So he does. And what he asserts in his mind is this, there is no God. And that naturally then leads to what the fool does, that they are corrupt, they do abominable disease uh, deeds. And right off from the beginning, we understand from Psalm 14 here that there are no neutral places here. There are no neutral places here. There is There is no uh, uh, intermediate states or intermediate places or alternatives or middle ground to either serving and loving the Lord or being in rebellion against Him. One of the commentators that I read said about this verse, he said, Anyone who rejects Yahweh is a fool. Those who reject Yahweh cause the world to be ruined. They commit commit abominations, and they do nothing good. That is a strong statement, isn't it? There's no middle ground. There's no intermediate state. There's no place. It's either one way or the other. And see, we must understand that as verse 1 is saying to us, and as the commentator rightly said, is that we must understand that all sin... And all sin, listen, opposes any kind of human flourishing or righteousness. Sin sucks life out of us. It sucks joy out of us. And it is clearly perceived right there in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. The fool here, in his foolishness, is emphasizing more than just his will is more than just what he says in a heart in an emotional way, but it's a conscious, mindful decision. Because fool here doesn't, doesn't mean necessarily that he's dumb or stupid. In fact, some of the biggest fools ever are the most intelligent and the most educated. And yet they are foolish. The fool says in his heart... And the heart is not only about emotions like we talk about in our culture today. We make this dichotomy that heart is all emotion and mind is all logic. But that's not the case of the Bible. The Bible speaks of the heart as the place where we think. Where we think. There's There's no distance in a sense between the heart and the mind. It's where we will make decisions. It's where we define ourselves. And so the fool is the one who consciously, in their mind, in their will, and in their heart, committing themselves to do what? To deny God. To say in their heart, there is no God. You know, Romans chapter 1 speaks of this. In verses 18 through 23, it describes this process. By their unrighteousness, they do what? They suppress the truth. Right? What can be known about God is plain. It's well-known. He has revealed himself in general revelation through creation. What is plain, he has revealed it to us. So then we are all without excuse for doing what? For dishonoring him or not giving thanks to him. And then in verse 21, tells us about the fool. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. You can be the most intelligent, you can be the smartest of all, and the fool says in their heart, there is no God. You can have all the accolades, you can have all the positions of power and prestige, you can have all the academic degrees, and all the students, and and have all these followers around you. But if you say in your heart there is no God, or even with your mouth that there is no God, then you are a fool. Claiming to be wise, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's the fool, right? Here's here's the fool. And they became futile in their thinking. How many of the experts that we see today, experts are fools, absolute fools, and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so this is just as what Psalm 14 says. In their foolishness, they say, there is no God. You know, today when, when we hear someone say there is no God, we call them atheists. So we, we have a word for that. Meaning they, they do not believe in God, God's existence, or, or that there is any kind of spiritual life beyond the material world. This, this atheism has, a, has some loud teachers and loud leaders, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins being some of them. And it's becoming more and more and more mainstream in our society. But what we are seeing as this ideology becomes more and more prevalent... We see itself, the atheistic belief that's coming out and being lived out and being applied, as as culture is a lot of times downstream from our philosophy. We see how nihilistic it is, meaning how meaningless, how it shows that life is just nothingness. And rightfully so. It shows that life is is meaningless because everything is materialistic, meaning meaning that all that there is to life is what you can see, hear, touch, and feel, and there's nothing beyond any of that. No wonder there is such a barbaric belief in the avocation of death in all things. And of course, this brings about the secular views of morality. And certainly this form of atheism is in view in verse 1 that says in his heart, there is no God. But contextually, David is speaking of of a different form of atheism, a different form of atheism that's not devoid of any kind of religion or gods because there were plenty of gods and religions back then most had a religion or gods but rather it is an atheism that is a rejection of the one true god and then the worship of of idols that are not gods at all gods that they can manipulate gods that they can control which again Sounds a lot like the secular humanism we see today, how religious it is. And in Job, Job describes this kind of atheism as a practical atheism. He says, They spend their days in prosperity, and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, Depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty? that we should serve him. And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, it is not their prosperity, is not their prosperity in their hand. That is the practical atheism that rejects God, that rejects God in in, in these particular ways. That's not always the outright denial of the existence of God, but it's the one who lives their life in such a way, just like Job described, as if God doesn't exist at all, even though they may admit or confess something completely different. And this describes most people apart from Christ. Check Check the statistics of religious beliefs in our country today. Of Christianity today. And the fool is the one who says there is no God in their hearts and chooses to live a life apart from the will of God, which practically is atheism. And there is the problem. The progression of all sorts of depravity then comes When we surrender the truth and the knowledge of God. And David tells us. And the first is corruption. The word corrupt means to spoil or or ruin. Think of that spoiled milk smell. Sorry. Or even if you've had the, the displeasure of taking a drink of some spoiled milk. Think of the the moldy bread, the ruined bread, or the the rotten egg, or or that lost potato you found in the pantry. Ooh. That's corruption. Corruption is a a spoiling. It's not only perverse, but it infects, it spoils others. And now I want you to understand that this description of corruption, and even later when it says abominable diseases or uh, diseases, deeds, we'll talk about that more in a second, but this this doesn't mean that the practical atheist, or even the the one who says they're an atheist, or the agnostic, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't mean that they, they cannot, they're, they're not a nice guy, or they could be a nice guy to you, or a nice lady to you, right? They, they could be your your neighbor, and they can notice that you forgot to take your trash out and take your trash can out. They can be cordial and nice, and you can you can have dinner together, kind of thing. That doesn't mean that they're going to be not going to be nice people. It doesn't mean that the atheist cannot be a good husband or a good wife or good fathers and good mothers and raise good children and have and be good citizens and live moral lives. But their corruption is still there, and by the very belief that comes from their heart in the denying of the greatest reality in the universe, the creator God, and the failure to honor him and worship him will bring corruption. And second, second, from their wicked hearts, what do they do? They, they do abominable deeds, abominable disease. So, as, so deeds, as corruption continues so does man's wicked deeds and as we lose the foundation of 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 this right so as we as we lose the foundation for all of our ethics and for all of our morality and when there's no idea of an accountability with a holy and righteous god then there is nothing to hold us back from plunging into all sorts of horrors and abominable deeds And so the question I kind of ask is, obviously, is do we really need to unpack that more than that? I mean, do we really need to say more than that when, when all you have to do is just check the daily headlines and hear of the most grotesque evil, the most outlandish foolishness and wicked views that are coming out and bombarding us with that that are, listen, that are utterly destroying and tearing apart the fabric of our society and destroying human flourishing. I mean, it is. It is absolutely destroying us. Can we not see the outward destruction the abominable deeds of the wicked and of the fools? And so this is where David he makes his final assessment. And just when he's thinking he's talking only of some special class of people only the ones who have said there is no god he says this There is none who does good. The fool says in the heart there is no God, but the devastating reality, again, is that we are the problem. I am the problem. There is none who does good, which means, again, we're the problem. I know it's it's not cool to talk about Russians anymore in a good way, um, but in the 19th century, before the Bolshevik Revolution and the commies took over, um, there was a writer and a poet, and his, there were several writers and poets, but this particular one, his name was Ivan Turkenev. And he had a, a pretty profound statement in regards to this. He said, he says, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. <laughs> there is none that are good. We certainly do not want to be the fool, do we? We do not want to be the practical atheists by our lifestyles we deny our Lord. But the truth is, as God's word cuts to the marrow in all manners of ways, it is telling us and showing us and reminding us that we are sinners. There is none of us who have done any good before God that can earn any kind of righteousness. And yet there is also the strong warning as well that do not be the fool who says in their hearts or with their mouth, there is no God. And secondly, we look to verses two and three where we see God's inspection. We see God's inspection. Davis tells us us how the Lord looks down and he sees. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. There's verse 2. but th- So this, this is the obvious ongoing perspective of the Bible, isn't it? Not just here, and, and that is no matter how much man may deny God and the existence of God or, 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 or whatever, that, that doesn't make the Lord God any less real. And this is important what he says, right? What we understand here is that he still knows and he still is examining our lives, each individually, our lives according to the standard and measure of his righteousness. Now in a literal sense, right? In a literal sense, the Lord does not have to come down. He doesn't have to come down and and, and look. This is This is figurative language so that us simple creatures can visualize and understand of of God who is looking down and inspecting us and our work, right? So in this description is so important, right? As looking down because he's, he's not looking up to us as if he is beneath us. He doesn't look over at us as if we are his peers or his friends. No, he is looking down on us because he is exalted highly above us he is omniscient and in his omniscience he already knows in examining our hearts and yet this simple verse is a simple reminder to us that the lord knows our actions and our hearts he knows every one of our deeds he knows all that we think He knows all that we say and all that we maybe wanted to say. He knows all of our desires and what we treasure. He knows what we hate. He knows what we visualize. He knows what we treasure. And yes, that is quite the scary thought. But that's exactly what us mere creatures from verse 2 are to understand because it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. In verse 2, the ESV uses the phrase children of man, which literally means sons of man or sons of Adam. Now, depending on the context, Adam can mean human beings, man in general, or the first man God created. And here correctly translated, meaning human beings, man. But it carries with it the echo. The echo of our fall. Because the, as children of Adam, we are sinners. He is our father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For all, for as in Adam, excuse me, all die. And so by the Lord's inspection, what does the Lord see? What is he, what is he seeing? He's seeing what it says in verse 3. It says that they all turned aside. They all have looked away. They have all together, they have become corrupt. So the assessment of David is correct. They, they have been corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. This assessment of the Lord, this inspection of the Lord is what? It's not good. And again, it's, it's all inclusive. Right here, here's, our, here's the inclusivity that our world wants here it is. You're a sinner, just like me. We're all sinners. Not just the especially bad people, but every man and every woman on earth. You know, Jesus made the same kind of inspection on man on a few occasions. And in particular, was when Jesus was preaching at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He goes through a few of the commandments, you shall not murder, and you shall Cannot, you, you should not commit adultery. And in those, as he states these commandments, he, he ups the ante on murder and on adultery. And that on murder, he says, if, you, if you've hated in your heart... And that's equal to murder. You have murdered your brother. You have murdered whoever you have hated in your heart. And the same thing goes to committing adultery. If you looked at a, a, a woman in lust, then you have committed adultery in your heart. And so what Jesus is, is saying here is that all of us are lawbreakers. That all of us are, are, are murderers and adulterers and liars and blasphemers and, and covetors in our, in our hearts. It's not just our, the acting out of those things in our external actions that are the sin, but it's where sin starts and that is in our hearts. Where David addresses there in verse 1 in saying, There is no God. So in our sin, when we assert ourselves as giving into those desires in our hearts, we ourselves are saying, there is no God. I can do what I please. And so the Lord of heaven, he's looking down. He's he's surveying the whole earth. And what is he doing? He's trying to find someone who understands his ways and who seeks him. And what he sees is astonishing, isn't it? He sees exactly what he saw in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. He saw what was was before the flood in in Genesis 6. He saw what he saw in the Tower of Babel. He sees the same thing when he saw Sodom and Gomorrah. He sees the, the foolish. The foolish wanting to be their own God rather than confess Jesus Christ as Lord and God. He sees that they would prefer to murder their own brothers than to submit to his son. He sees that they desire to pursue every form of wickedness with an evil heart rather than give their hearts to Jesus Christ. He sees them build for themselves monuments to heaven and worship humanity's greatness rather than to look up to a sovereign savior on a cross and dropped to their knees and bowed their heads at the feet of a crucified king. They would rather lust after strange flesh and sexual immorality than to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in purity and holiness. The wicked, the foolish, and the self-centered person will neither serve God nor will they seek God. The fool opposes the things of God. And this is what the Lord sees: that they all have become corrupt, and that there is none who do good, not even one. We are the problem. Don't be a fool. And yet, as the passage goes on, our foolishness goes further. Verse, verse four, number three. Point that we have, that we see this morning is that in our foolishness, we have a massive miscalculation. We have made a massive miscalculation. Look at verse 4. He says, have they no knowledge? All evildoers who eat my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. So he's asking a question, the kind of question of, of basically when we see all this foolishness happening around us, we're like, what's wrong with these people? Don't they, don't they know? Can't they see? Isn't this obvious to them? And this psalm is clearly a, a, a warning and what needs to be made known is true, right? Again, what we read in Romans chapter 1. What we know, what has been revealed is true. But listen, in that knowledge, the true knowledge that God has already given to us, that He, is, that, that he has created, that He is good, and He has created these things for his, his glory, even in that knowledge, they, do not, uh, they are not moved, are they? They are not moved to, to respond or to repent at all. And so what is the outcome again? Here's their corruption and the abominable disease. They devour the Lord's people like bread. Right? In the most basic of things. That's their most basic instinct to devour. And so they devour the Lord's people like bread. And so they call upon the Lord. Or so why won't they call upon the Lord? Why? Why? Why would they call upon the Lord? Why would they need anything? Why would they have anything to fear? And so what is clear that verse 4 is built upon is what verse 3 is that all have turned inside. There is none that does good, not even one. But there also should be maybe to a, a, an obvious question to our astute Bible readers this morning is this. An obvious question. That if there is not one, right, that, that does good, then how does verse 4 tell us Or where does God's people come from? Where do God's people come from in verse 4? And the answer to that question is this, is that God's people, they, they were not seeking him on their own. It was God who chose them and made them his people. And so even in Psalm 14, in the mess of the of the foolish and those of all, of all of humanity, the assessment of all of humanity, the foolishness of, of our hearts and the massive miscalculations that we, that we make that even here we see this psalm pointing us to the truth of God's glorious and eternal purposes that he is saving a people for himself and that people are, are unworthy sinners that he will save by his grace. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his sons, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we also be saved by his life. That's Romans 5. And so certainly, Psalms 14 is giving us uh, man's massive miscalculation of ignoring what, of, of what has been clearly perceived and clearly given and clearly revealed. And yet, my, it's also exposing to us man's desire for sin and rebellion against God. But even here, we see how the Lord, through Christ, does what? That he turns enemies, that he turns Workers of unrighteousness. He takes the ungodly. He takes atheists and he makes them into worshipers. And he makes them into worshipers. But as good as that is, the miscalculations get worse in verse 5. They are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous, verse 6. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Again, I'll say it again. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's Hebrews 10, verse 31. And when they do not realize that knowledge, there will be a profound sense of dread of a holy God. There's no question that, that today many people are, are, are plagued by fear. They're plagued by an unsettling of their, of their souls and feelings and emotions, hearts and minds. There's anxiety and depression. And that has been categorized in our time in those terminologies. And our society is answering those, those problems through what is called the therapeutic. Through various therapies. You know, there's, there's so much discussion surrounding Um, Our 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 world today, our culture today, surrounding mental health, isn't it? We pretty much call almost everything mental health crisis or mental health problems, and the only treatment is this treatment of the therapeutic, and the treatment of the therapeutic essentially is this: it's all it's all self help, it's all self improvement, it's all self esteem, it's it's all look into your heart and you'll find the answer you'll find the you'll find the cure etc etc however most of our mental issues stem I believe from this particular truth is that within the fabric of our souls is built and ingrained within our truth of the knowledge of God and we have suppressed them in such a way and so far down and that we understand that we are broken and we understand our brokenness and then in that, as we're being treated by these particular things, that, that our brokenness cannot be fixed by the one who broke it. Us. That we are the problem. And so underneath then, all of this, and we see the consequences and the, the symptoms being just boiling out. And we're addressing the symptoms only with medications and all kinds of things. Now, I'm not speaking completely specific. I'm thinking very general, painting with a very broad brush here. But I think underneath this is what this verse is telling us is that there is a great terror in the heart of man that knows that they are broken and society has nothing to give them. But look to yourself and take a pill. It does nothing. It suppresses the truth. It's an attempt to inoculate ourselves with entertainment and more stuff. And to only forget that we are the problems, we are the, we are the fools. Popular therapy says, you're not the problem. I mean, it does, it says, you're not the problem. You have made little problems. Maybe we can correct some of those little things that you've done in your life that are disastrous or, or, or devastating. But you're essentially, you're not the problem because you're not the fool. You're not the wicked. But that's, not a, that's like complete opposite of what the Bible says. And we see that in a culture and a world that has completely thrown theology out the window. is that it's useless, it's worthless. Don't spill, that's a lot of water. No wonder we see the devastating effects. And the presence of God, listen, the presence of God in our very own brokenness exposes this. The presence of God terrifies the foolish. No wonder they have to suppress it so much. It terrifies them. But he is to his own people. Brothers and sisters, to us, by his grace and by such mercy, he is unspeakable joy and comfort to us, isn't he? Do you understand the terrible miscalculation that all of humanity has made? And by his grace, you were once there. We've created this, and even in the way that we've terribly miscalculated, it shows how deep and how bad man's depravity really can get. That even in our darkness, man can be so foolish that even with the Lord's diagnosis, we still would continue to move into such a foolish miscalculation that will lead us into a further, darker road of self-destruction and eventual judgment. Don't be a fool. And lastly, lastly we see in verse 7 as he brings us back now to the Lord's glorious salvation because now what is the hope of man? If there's nothing we can do, we are the fools, we are the problems and we need the Lord. What do we need? We need salvation. Look at verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and be Israel be glad. And so the context of, of of Psalm 14, as David has has written, was for Israel. And he's calling them to hope in God and the salvation that would that would come out of Zion, and as he, as he looked around and he saw the, the miseries of the world, the fools who denied the Lord, who brought about corruption, abomin- abominations that destroy life, and he's determined that there is nothing good, there's no good in us, and yet still here at the end of the psalm, in a fervent prayer, he points us to hope that salvation will come. And this prayer for salvation is out of Zion. And this is his longing for a Messiah, the King of kings. The Hebrew word for salvation is this, Yeshua. Which is where the name Jesus comes from. Because as we know from Matthew verse 21, or verse 1, chapter, excuse me, chapter 1 verse 21. That he would be that he would save his people from their sin and so the answer to david's prayer of salvation coming from zion to restore the fortunes of his people and bring hope to israel is this is christ jesus is our salvation Jesus is our fortune. Jesus is our treasure. Friends, has God revealed or showed to you from his word that you are a fool? Atheist, practical atheist, unbeliever, have you, have you miscalculated your views of life? And miscalculated your own corruption and sin? Have you miscalculated the terror of God's coming judgment? The answer to all of your foolishness and to all of your folly is Jesus. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God. It's the opposite of foolishness, wisdom. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The calling this morning is not for us, is, is for us to not remain in our foolishness. To come, to come to Christ Jesus who is our wisdom from God. He is righteousness and sanctification in our redemption, our salvation. Come, repent, come repent and, and rejoice in him. Come, come join his people who boast in him and boast in his salvation. Come, His salvation has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. We were all fools at one point or another. We were all enemies of God. We all have, none of us have done good. And when you think about the thief on the cross, who at the 11th hour, the very end of his life, he confessed Jesus Christ. You think about all of his life, all the way up to that moment, what did he do? He lived the life of a fool. And even the moments leading up to that, he, he took part in the scolding and the railing on Jesus. to, to if, you're Christ, if you're a Christ, save yourself and save us. And yet, that fool made it to heaven. <laughs> what? Scandalous. How did that how did that happen? How did such a practical atheist, a fool, make it to heaven? Well, it wasn't by because he had an understanding of justification by faith alone. It's not that he could articulate the doctrine of scripture or that he had a church membership or attendance. The only way he made it to heaven that day was because of the man on the cross in the middle. On the cross next to him. And I'm not belittling those doctrines. I love those doctrines. But our salvation, fools, listen, is in Christ alone. And that is our boast. That is our testimony. And that thief that day, he looked over at that 11th hour and he asked him, Remember me. When you get to the kingdom, remember me. And Jesus looked over to the fool and to the thief and he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Brothers and sisters, don't be the fool in this life. Look to Christ, follow Christ, and treasure him. For he is our salvation, he is our hope, he is our joy, and all things. We say together, to Him be the glory. And all of God's people say, Amen.